All right. Good morning, Orangewood. Good to see you all. Great worship. Let's thank our worship team. What a great time. Thank you. No louder sound than the sound of a captive set free. What a great song to get ready to look into God's word. It, it, you know, worship is a great thing because we come together to remember when we worship, don't we? Uh, and we remember what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We remember how great God is. It's a time of remembering how we're on mission. Thank you, bishops. That was dynamite. That was great. Ava was precious up here. I think Joe Creech got rebaptized. I'm not sure what happened. We were over here in the dark. I don't know what happened over here. Is that what happened? He got rebaptized in Jesus' name or something like that. But uh, everything, every aspect of our service is about remembering who God is, what he's done. We, we forget, we leak. Uh, we need every week to meet together to remember what God has done. Uh, speaking of remembering, uh, you may remember a few weeks ago I made an accurate prediction in the National Football Conference playoff about who would win, who would be playing and who would win, accurate prediction of who would be in the Super Bowl. Unfortunately, I made an inaccurate prediction about who would win the Super Bowl. I'm still in mourning. That's why I'm wearing this color shirt today. Uh, the San Francisco 49ers did not win. They lost. And so this is me eating humble pie here today. I made an inaccurate prediction. You heard it here. I was wrong. Well-intentioned, but I was wrong. A friend of mine texted me early Monday morning after the Super Bowl uh, in his inimitable way as I was reading the Bible, praying and mourning. And he texted me this question, Pete, what is the difference between popcorn and the San Francisco 49ers? Answer, popcorn belongs in a bowl. <laughs> I prayed right then and there he would get the fever and die, you know. <laughs> but, but I go on record, I, 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 I am a Bible teacher, I am not a prophet. Did you all hear that? I'm a Bible teacher, I'm not a prophet. And so, but today, as we look into God's word, we are going to hear a prophecy of the prophet par excellence, our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see a prophecy. We're going to hear a prophecy that has already been fulfilled. And uh, we're going to see how it applies to us as Orangewood now, right now, for such a time as this. Uh, before we look into God's holy word, listen to that prophet, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer and talk to him briefly. Our great Lord Jesus, what a privilege to be able to come into your presence, the presence of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but knowing that we can only come into your presence because of what you have accomplished already on this planet. We honor you as the Lord who created, the Lord who sustains, but the Lord who redeemed us by your blood shed on the cross over 2,000 years ago. We honor you in your death, burial, and resurrection that you reign in heaven with the Father now. You lead your church as you guide us through worship, the word, the sacraments. And so we ask that you would lead us now. We're so thankful that life is more than a game, that it's a huge adventure to be a part of your call, your mission. 
And so we ask now, as we look into your word, that you would be with the one who teaches that you would forgive him his sins and use one who is finite to communicate your infinite truth. May our focus be upon you, our Lord Jesus, now as we pray in your holy name. Amen. Well, as we look at the text today in Mark, as we continue our study in Mark, we're going to be seeing that Israel is under new management. Uh, that's the flow of this text. It's a great text. Uh, we're going to see that a new boss is in town. That as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, as we saw last week, he is flexing his muscle and he's showing who really is the king. It's a great text, and you're going to remember as I read it that this follows the text that Mark Nix preached last week, that triumphal entry of our Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, where he came in, and then, then he came to the temple. And if you were here last week, you remember that Mark said he didn't come to cleanse the temple. He came to what? Does anyone remember? Curse the temple. And so this text that I'm going to read right now is the text that happens the day after Jesus rides into Jerusalem and has come to curse the temple. The traditional way is calling it the cleansing of the temple, where he made a mess in the temple. And, and this text that we look at now follows right after that. Mark 11, verse 27 through chapter 12, verse 12. This is God's holy word. And they came again, they the disciples, and they came again to Jerusalem. They spent the night in Bethany or Bethphage. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for a wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent them to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus asked. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people 
for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. What a great text. I love this. I love this text. Now, if you're at Orangewood today for the very first time, I want you to know we're glad you're here. Uh, we, we want you to be here, and, and we want you to know that we've been working through the book of Mark pretty much line upon line, precept, precept upon precept. We've been working through it. So you're coming today, jumping in in the middle of a, of a series that we've been doing in the gospel of Mark. And it's so important to remember uh, that the gospel of Mark really came from Peter, Peter discipled Mark. Uh, they ended up in Rome together, uh, and Mark wrote down what the apostle Peter saw as an eyewitness of the life of Christ, so we can trust what's going on here uh, as from an eyewitness. But Mark was a young guy hanging out around Jesus, too. He saw some of these events. And, uh, and so uh, we just want you to know we've been going through this book because at Orangewood, we're committed to knowing the Bible and what the Bible says. That way, if I step out of line, you can come up and say, I'm not sure that's what the text says. Um, we, want you, we want you to hold us accountable on that. Now, if you're here for the first time and you're not a Christ follower, I want you to know we're also glad you're here. Uh, there's a, uh, we're, we're all, look around, we're at different stages of our spiritual pilgrimage here at Orangewood. Some have not yet committed to Christ. They're not Christ followers yet, but they're checking Jesus Christ out. We're glad you're here. Some have been our brand new Christians. Some have been Christians since the New Testament was written, it seems like, and uh, been following Jesus for a long time. And so we're all along the spiritual spectrum. But if you have not made a commitment to Christ yet, this text will give you some information upon which to make a decision about it. Is he the real deal? Can Jesus Christ be trusted? Um, is what he says authoritative? Can I build my life on him? And so as I unpack this text, I invite you to ask those questions uh, to yourself and, 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 and see if Jesus really is someone that you could trust, as, as have we. Now, this text is simple. I like three-point sermons. Here's a two-point sermon. This is really easy. It's talking about Jesus' authority, his unquestioned authority, and then Jesus' new plan for Israel. And so what we see as we unpack these two, two major points is that Jesus really is the prophet par excellence of Israel. Back in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, there will be a prophet that will come after me. Another prophet. And, and Jesus is that prophet. Hebrews 11, uh, chapter 1 says that God has spoken to us in many portions, in many ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us in his what? In his son. Jesus is the last prophet. We don't need any other prophets because the son of God has come and has unveiled to us the truth of God. Now, real quick, a prophet is an authoritative spokesman from God. And they're, they're, they're from the earliest days of the Old Testament, all the way through the Old Testament time, through John the Baptist to Jesus. So uh, the prophets were authoritative spokesmen from God, and they had two major roles. One role was to speak forth the word of God to God's people right then and there. Isaiah, for instance, spoke forth the word of God to the Israelites in his day, and so would 
Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and the Italian prophet Malachi. They all were, were, they were speaking forth the word of God for the people of God right then and there. But sometimes the prophets also gave predictions of the future where they foretold what was to come. And a lot of times when we think of prophets, we think of prophets as foretelling the future. But most of the time, they were just speaking to the people of the day, saying, thus saith the Lord, do this. Don't do this, do this. Jesus in this role is, in a sense, doing both. He's speaking to the people of God, but if, if we had to focus on one, he's more telling the future. And it's near future. As we unpack this, and you're going to help me unpack this today, as, as we unpack this parable, uh, we're going to see that it was fulfilled shortly after his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, a couple other things about a prophet. In the Old Testament, there was this belief that if a prophet, Deuteronomy 13, if a prophet did a miracle to prove that he was a prophet, but then he said to the Israelites, don't follow the God of Israel, then Moses says, don't follow that guy. He did a miracle, yes, but he's a false prophet. And, and Jesus, Jesus warns us often against following false prophets. But there's another passage in Deuteronomy 18 about prophets that if they foretold something and it came true, then what does it say about him as a prophet? He can be trusted. But if it doesn't come true, then he can't be trusted. In this case, it's important for us to see as we look at this that, that Jesus is a prophet who foretold something that has become true, has been fulfilled, and therefore he can be trusted. That's why I start, start off here with Jesus' unquestioned authority. I love this. I love, don't you love, you gotta love this like I love this how he interacts with these Pharisees. And, and remember, this is right after he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey and after he messed up the temple. I'll talk about that in a minute. But this is right after that. And so the text tells us in chapter 11, verses 27 through 33, that Jesus comes into the temple. And when he comes into the temple, he's coming home. When Jesus comes into the temple, he's coming home. Whose temple is it? Orangewood. Whose temple is this? His temple. When he was young and he was sitting there talking to the scribes and the Pharisees and his earthly mother and father, Joseph and Mary, came back and found him. And they said, why did you do this to us? Where were you? And Jesus said, well, where do you expect? It's in the footnote of the original text. Where do you expect, mom? Where do you expect, dad? I am to be in what? My father's house. And so, and so when Jesus comes into the temple here, he's coming into his temple. He's the lion of Judah. He's flexing his muscles. He's showing who he really is, the king. This is a true come to Jesus moment that we see here with the, with the Pharisees. And, the, and now, you're not going to like, let me tell you this. You are not going to like Jesus if you like people in power like the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees who liked to stay in power and not care about the people and not really care about God. If you, if you like people like that, you're not going to like Jesus. If you like people who play nice and do religion and use religious language, you're not going to like Jesus. 
because Jesus doesn't play games. And so just as last week, Mark Nix told us that when Jesus came into the temple, he did not come to cleanse the temple. When he came into the temple, remember what Mark said last week? He, that, that in the court of the Gentiles, there were animals there. And what was the court of the Gentiles for? Just to tip you off by that name. The court of the Gentiles was for Gentiles to come as close as they could get to God and do what? Pray. They weren't Jews. They hadn't been circumcised. They weren't the covenant people, but they could get that close. Why? Because God had made a covenant to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 that Abraham would build a mighty nation that would build a nation that would be for all the nations of the world to be blessed in and that the Messiah, as we see it unfold, would come through Israel. So the court of the Gentiles was for them. But the Jewish leaders, they closed that all down. Uh, they were making money in the temple. And, and so Jesus comes in and confronts these guys, and he doesn't cleanse the temple. He, in other words, cleansing the temple would be like what happened uh, back in uh, 458 B.C. when the Israelites came back from captivity. And under, under Ezra, Nehemiah, and all those guys. And what did they have to do? The first thing they had to do was build a temple and then build the walls around Jerusalem, right? Well, when they built the temple, rebuilt the temple, then they had to cleanse it so that what could take place? Sacrifices. It could get up and running again as Israelites worshiping the one true God. In 458 BC, that's when they cleansed the temple. Now, what Jesus came to do was to curse the temple. Basically, what Jesus came to do here was to shut down the temple, was to say that the temple is done. The temple sacrifices are over. Why? Because the temple and the leadership were all corrupt. And he was the one that was going to fix things. Who is the unquestioned authority here in this situation. Jesus clearly is. I love what he does. Uh, he makes a mess of the temple because the leaders of Israel had made a spiritual mess of the temple, turning it into a, into a place of business. In verse 27, it says that Jesus cursed the temple. Uh, he cursed the temple. Uh, but in verse 27, it's interesting because it says the next day, after he cursed the fig tree and he goes away, what does he do? He comes back into the temple the next day after cursing, after ripping over the tables, he comes walking back into the temple. Why? Because he's not afraid. And what we have to understand is that somebody saw Jesus come walking back into the temple as he's walking around. The day after he ripped over the tables, driven out the animals, Jesus comes deliberately walking back. Somebody saw him, went running to the chief priest, Pharisee said, hey, he's back. He's back. He's back. And so they get a delegation together and they come over to see Jesus. And Jesus, why is Jesus there? Because he is absolutely not afraid. He's not afraid of anybody. Uh, I had a friend who was an elder in our church and uh, his name is Norm. He's in heaven now. Uh, he died too soon, but he was a battalion chief and then a division chief in Seminole County, fire chief. What a great guy. And he used to have a deal uh, that whenever we were starting a new building project or doing something big, I'd say, Norm, are you with me? And he'd go, I ain't scared. I ain't scared. 
whenever we had a big challenge and a big conflict, uh, I'd say, Norm, you with me? He goes, I ain't scared. I, lo I love that. I can't wait to hear that again. Um, Jesus was not scared. There was no fiber in his being that was afraid of these guys. And that is important for us to understand as Christ followers today that we follow the Lord of the universe who is the absolute unquestioned authority over all things. And that's why he could walk into the temple and do what he did. Uh, and so they come to him and they say, by what authority? What right do you have to do these things, to turn over the temple, to walk around here like you own this place? What authority do you have to do this? And Jesus looks at them. I love that. Jesus says, uh, he won't play their game. He says, I got a question for you. You answer me this question and I, I'll answer you, but only if you answer my question. Do you catch what he's doing here? This is a power play par excellence. And for those of you who think of gentle Jesus, meek and not mild, this is not that Jesus. Jesus looks at these guys and, and they say, answer us. Where do you get this authority? And Jesus says, you answer my question and I'll answer yours. But I go first. And, and so they say, well, because these guys, these guys were bold, but they were cowards. You see, people who don't care about God, but are trying to maintain their own positions to the, to, the, to the detriment of the people who don't care about God, who don't care about the people, they're ultimately afraid of people. They're cowards. Why? Because all they want is power for themselves to aggrandize themselves. And Jesus knows they're cowards and he knows that they're not, their hearts are not with him. And so they go over and they say, well, if we say that the baptism of John was not from God, well, the people are going to be against us because everybody, all the people believe that John the Baptist was sent from God. And so they just came back and they said, well, we don't know. We don't know. Jesus looks at him and he says, all right, I ain't answering you. Because they didn't deserve an answer. And so I, I want you to see here that Jesus, here's what I want you to see about Jesus. Even if you follow Jesus for a very long time, what I want you to see is that Jesus is more radical than you ever thought he was. That if you think Jesus was here to play games, uh, if you think Jesus was here to play nice and to make friends, no, Jesus actually disturbed these guys far more than anybody have ever disturbed them. These Pharisees had control of the people. These chief priests had made peace with Rome, in a matter of speaking. They were playing the religious game. They kept as much power as they want. Jesus was the most disturbing figure in first century Judaism, except for those people who were truly repentant of their sins and who truly wanted a relationship with God. He is the unquestioned authority over the temple because he is God come in human flesh. And having established his authority, then he moves on to give a parable. Now he goes into some teaching. And if some of you feel the stridency of my voice, I know, sounds harsh, doesn't it? It's, it's what comes out of the text because now Jesus gives his new plan for Israel in chapter 12, verses 1 through two, uh, 12. And this is a parable. Uh, it is an important teaching. And real quick, I want you to help unpack this with me. I read it once. Do you all follow along with me on that? I don't need to read it again, do I? I don't have time to read it again. 
But uh, let's unpack this parable of the vineyard. By the way, a parable you, is an earthly story that usually has one interpretation. But this is more like a parable allegory with several elements and several applications. So let, let me ask you some questions and feel free to answer back. This would be a big, small group. You don't have to say anything if you don't want to, but if you feel bold, answer best you can. If you're wrong, I won't throw you under the bus. So there it is. But uh, in this parable, we see that there's an owner of the vineyard. Who is the owner of the vineyard? God, right. God's the owner of the vineyard. Then there are cultivators of the vineyard. Those who take care of the vineyard, who are they? How about the leaders of Israel? All right, supposed to be the cultivators of Israel, the caretakers, uh, uh, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the leaders. See, servant leaders supposed to take care of the people of God, right? Okay, so who is the vineyard? We have a PCA pastor visiting from up north. You can answer this if you want. Uh, I won't throw you under the bus. I won't call you a church planter. God bless you. You get three free sins. Church planters almost go directly to heaven. I want you to know. But you look like you still need Jesus, brother, but I'm glad you're here. Glad you're here. You're taking care of the vineyard. Who's the vineyard? Israel. The vineyard was a, a metaphor of Israel back in the Old Testament time, back in Jeremiah, or excuse me, Isaiah 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. So Israel, the, the idea of the vine, the vineyard, what does Jesus say in John 15? I'm, you're the true vine. My, fa my father is the, the vine dresser. Okay, well, anyway, the vine thing is, is there. Now, who are the servants? Who are the servants who have taken over, uh, that, that come to the, the current possessors of the vineyard? They're the prophets, right, I heard it. They're the prophets who spoke for God. The servants uh, are, 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 who, who come to the, the current owner of this vineyard or the current runner of the vineyard are the prophets who spoke for God. And then who's the son? Because the, the servants were all beaten, mistreated, and cast out. But the son comes. Who's the son? Uh, obviously, Jesus Christ, the son of God. Clear, this, is, this is not a difficult parable for these leaders to understand. Do you think they grasped what Jesus was saying right away as he was saying it? Absolutely they did. In fact, the text tells us. And then, then there is a, a group of people called the others who would take over the vineyard. Who are the others who would take over the vineyard? The church of Jesus Christ. All right, we've unpacked it. Now let me apply it and then I'll get you out of here. We'll be done uh, uh, by three, four o'clock today. I want you to know that, no, just to give me a couple more minutes and we'll, we'll apply this to you and me right now. I have several applications, but here they go pretty quick. Number one, this story is based on real life in Israel. This is a parable in that it's a not, not a real story in the sense that this actually happened, but it's not unlike what happened. This happened all the time. There were absentee landowners in Israel in the first century. It was quite, quite often people owned property, planted a vineyard or whatever, and then took off, had somebody else run the property. This happened. And, and, and they, everybody who heard this story would have understood. It's like, it's like if I, you know, remember when they changed the off-ramp over here at Maitland? I was coming from downtown one day and they had changed the off-ramp. I was going too fast. 
and they changed it. I was like, oh man, they changed it. And I made it and didn't have an accident. It was a great, I mentioned something about I-4 interchange at Maitland Boulevard and Maitland Boulevard here. We all understand each other, right? We've all had to repent of sin uh, for how long it's taken. You understand? All right. Just as you understand all that, they would have heard this story and they would have said, oh, I get it. Okay. It all resonated. Secondly, I want you to note that this parable is based on Old Testament and New Testament economics. I'm not going to go into this long, but I want you to understand this because Jesus, when Jesus tells this story, this story reveals an Old Testament thinking about economics and a New Testament thinking about economics. And it's important for us as Christians living at the beginning of the 21st century to understand it. Uh, what he's saying, number one, is that the Bible supports the ownership of private property, for instance. Uh, and the Bible does support that. The Bible supports entrepreneurism, starting a business, investing one's own capital in business, uh, uh, expecting that there to be profit to come from that capital. And if those who are managing our resources don't, uh, don't do what's right, then they need to be replaced. You see, all of this is based on biblical thinking about work in the world. And I bring this up because there's been so much pick and talk today in the news about socialism and how that's God's way. I want you to know it's not. It's not at all. But Jesus reveals uh, the, uh, an economic uh, uh, underpinning here. Generosity is talked about in the Bible. Hard work is talked about in the Bible, but not socialism. So there it is. Have fun with that later when you have roast pastor for lunch, okay? <laughs> Number three, of course, the main point, the big idea here is that Israel should have been spiritual. Israel should have been a fruitful vine. Were they a fruitful vine? No, they weren't. What we misunderstand in Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees so much of the time is we think that the Pharisees and the scribes were just good religious people who had a different view of God or in a different interpretation of the Old Testament than Jesus. That's not what's going on. The reality is, is what Jesus says in John, and I don't have time to go into this, read John 8 today when you get home. After you've criticized me at lunch, have, read John 8 uh, and, um, and read that, because what Jesus says to the, to the disciples, or to the Pharisees, is he says, you are of your father, the devil. They said, we don't have, he's not our father. Abraham's our father. Jesus says, if Abraham was your father, you would support me. And so I want you to understand that this is very, very important to understand. In the whole process of understanding the scribes and the Pharisees is that these are corrupt religionists who have co-opted everything about Israel, including the temple. And that's why they had to go. Jesus comes to curse it, to wipe it all away, and to, and, and, and to accuse it and judge it right then and there. Because these were not just people with a different religion than Jesus. They had stolen the religion of Israel and were leading the people astray. And the Messiah has come to clean up the house and to start a new day. Fourth application is this. Because Israel was not profitable, Jesus had to die for their sins. Wait a minute. Because none of us are spiritually profitable. 
Jesus had to die for our sins. And where this is so convicting a text is that Jesus, before he could establish the leadership over Israel, before he could be, come back as king, he had to be here as the suffering servant and die for their sins, our sins. There's a very real sense in which the scribes and the Pharisees who had this, I'm going to earn my salvation kind of attitude. I'm going to do good deeds. I'm going to obey the law. They were corrupt. Just like before we came to faith in Christ, we were corrupt. And why we sung a song today, I, my hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. What is a true Christian? Is somebody who doesn't trust their own righteousness, but embraces Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord alone. Christ alone, cornerstone. We were the Pharisees. We were the scribes. We were the unfruitful vine. And Jesus paid for us. He took our curse on the cross so that we could be set free from sin and death and hell. And there's nobody that shouts louder than somebody who's been freed from captivity. So this application is us. As I look at the Pharisees, they drive me absolutely crazy. But if it weren't for Jesus, that would have been me. It was me. I'm a recovering Pharisee for crying out loud. By God's grace, we've been set free through faith in Christ to follow him. Now, there's one final application, and then I'm done. I promise. And the application is about the vineyard. See, the vineyard was going to be taken away from those servants that were unproductive, and he was going to give it to somebody else, right? Who is the somebody else that Jesus took the vineyard away from and, and, and gave it, put it under new management? Who are those people? It's you and me, the church. Jew and Gentile. Read Ephesians 3, Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3. That the reality is, is that the leadership of Israel had to be dethroned, had to be set aside. Why? Because they were corrupt. But there was a new plan. There was a new plan. And on the day of Pentecost, it got launched in a major way from people from every tongue, tribe, nation who put their faith in the Messiah, came to the Messiah, and God now has put Jew and Gentile together into the church. And who is now at point advancing the kingdom of God? It should have been the Jews. Now it's Jew and Gentile. Now it's you and me. This is an awesome statement that as we have come to this point in time, thank you to our pastor's search team. They've worked so hard. And we're entering a new era, aren't we? We're moving ahead. It was hard. We've been hurt. We've licked our wounds. Uh, a lot of us say, are we ever going to move ahead? Answer, yes. Jesus was always at the helm because he's always the ultimate authority. But right now, what do we do? We've got to recognize who we are. We've got to recognize that we're the new Israel, Jew and Gentile, whom he has put together to tell the world about Messiah. And so uh, Orlando is our mission field. As bad as the roads are, it's our mission field. 
We're, we're here. We're here to move forward now, right? We're here not to fight about ourselves, we're, uh, among ourselves. We're here to say, well, here we go. Let's make it happen. Because this prophecy has been fulfilled. Leadership of the kingdom and advancement of the kingdom has been taken away from the leaders of Israel. It's been given to us. Go therefore in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Why we have a missions conference? Why we go? Why we bring them here? And why we understand that our number one mission fields in our families and in our city. Isn't that cool? You're the new vine. Now is the time for us to say, Jesus, you're in charge and we follow you. How great it's going to be. How exciting it is to be a part of what God's doing, just like what you guys went through. To see him do what we don't expect, to believe in faith that he will do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. Do you believe that? I do. Let's be the Israel of God. You take it to heart. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that you're in charge. Jesus, we come to you and we commit ourselves to you. And as a church, we get ready. We are ready to move ahead into what you have for us. Be honored and glorified. And may we be hearts that are ready for your leadership, whatever that may be. We love you because you first loved us. In your name we pray. Amen.